Raiders, start your engines! Welcome to the one place everybody wants to be. Victory Lane, your source for news, analysis, discussion, interviews, and more from the world of NASCAR. Here's your host, Davey Siegel. Welcome back, party people, to the place everybody wants to be. You know it, you love it. It, of course, is Victory Lane. And today is episode 176. Had a Junior Motorsports crew chief on last week. Got another Junior Motorsports crew chief on this week. Got another great, scintillizing, sensational with all the Dickie V-isms today. Uh, interview with Taylor Moyer, who's the crew chief for Josh Berry on the number eight car at JRM. I had listened to a couple of his interviews a couple of years ago with my friends Jason Schultz and Andrew Curlin on their old show, Redhead Racing Radio. And I knew for a while I wanted to get Taylor on because he is very charismatic. He is very fun. He tells a lot of good stories, uh, which we got into in this chat, which I'm excited for you guys to hear. And He's also pretty damn good at his day job of being a crew chief in the Xfinity Series. So he's our guest today. Also going to chat a little bit about Las Vegas Motor Speedway. Lord Byron, William Byron winning the Pennzoil 400 out there in Sin City and preview Phoenix this weekend. The debut of the new short track rules package. So a lot to get to. little time to do it. Before we do anything, though, let's stop it right here and throw it over to our Wayback segment where Papa Siegel has more on the number 76. Take it away, Dad. Thank you, Duve, and welcome everyone to episode 176. Last time around, we remembered Ben Arnold, who once qualified at Talladega going backwards doing 178. We also looked back on Krusty Roeder, who drove number 76 in the Cars movie and was involved in the big wreck at the Motor Speedway of the South caused by Chick Hicks. Good, Chick, Today, we focus the Wayback Machine on the last campaigner to drive car 76 in the Cup Series back in 1994. That man was one of Davey's favorites, Hall of Famer Ron Hornaday Jr. Hornaday's racing roots run deep. His father was a two-time Winston West champion, and young Ron cut his teeth on the local short tracks before winning the Southwest Touring Championship in 1992 and 1993. Hornaday made 46 starts in the Cup Series and even won four races in the Xfinity Series, but he made his mark in the trucks. He ran 360 races in the Truck Series over 17 years, won 51 times, and took home the championship trophy four times. He was the first Truck Series driver elected into the NASCAR Hall of Fame in 2018. Our host has some personal connections to the driver Dale Earnhardt used to call his weapon. Mama Siegel likes to tell of the time she drove a young Davey down to Kernersville, North Carolina for a Kevin Harvick fan club meeting. When she texted Davey that there was a line of people getting autographs from some guy named Ron Hornaday, who drove a truck for Harvick, young Davey came running. Several years later, I was with Davey at Homestead, 
on the weekend that Harvick won his cup championship. One evening, I think it was after the Saturday race, we were in the infield at Hornaday's truck, listening to Jimmy Johnson's dad tell funny tales and drinking Hornaday's beer. At least I was. Hornaday kiddingly asked Davey if he was old enough yet to have one. Davey responded no, and Hornaday said, okay, when you are, I'll owe you one. So, do two questions. First, was Hornaday a Hall of Famer in your book? And more importantly, have you collected yet on that beer I owe you? All right. Uh, first off, yes, no doubt, slam dunk Hall of Famer. I think that's not even a debate. It's the NASCAR Hall of Fame. It's not the NASCAR Cup Series Hall of Fame or the NASCAR Xfinity Series Hall of Fame. It's the NASCAR Hall of Fame. And you cannot tell the story of NASCAR without talking about the Truck Series. And you cannot talk about the Truck Series without talking about Ron Hornaday Jr. That's why I think he has a place in the Hall. I think Sam Ard has a place in the Hall. Jack Ingram has a place in the Hall. Insert other Truck Series champions and dominators here, whether it's Mike Skinner, Johnny Sauter, Matt Crafton. I think all these guys in due time will have their place and should rightfully have their place in the NASCAR Hall of Fame. Not even to mention, you know, Richie Evans, Justin Bonsignor, Doug Kobe, um, other weekly local late model champions. I think that, you know, there's some, some iffy territory that you could get into, but for my money, you can't tell the story of NASCAR without talking about Ron Hornaday Jr. So, number one, he is for sure a Hall of Famer in my book and a very well-deserved one at that. I don't know how you feel, Dad. The fact that you asked the question makes me think you might not agree. So let me know next time I see you or talk to you. Um, number two, I have not cashed in on that beer yet. I have not had the opportunity to, though. There, there have been only a couple times where I've seen Ron or talked to Ron. A, I'm not sure if he remembers who I am. I'm sure if I showed him a picture or two from that night of me and you, Dad, with Jimmy Johnson's dad with his RV in the background, he may remember or be like, okay, this kid's not pulling my leg. He actually has receipts. Um, but I haven't had the chance to. So if and when that, and I hope it's a when, that opportunity arises, I will most certainly have that picture at the ready. I will most certainly have my story at the ready. And I will most certainly have a beer with the NASCAR Hall of Famer, Ron Hornaday Jr. I remember that night. I don't know if you do, but he was drinking Coors Light. And, uh, yeah, so maybe, maybe we'll have a Coors Light. Or if he's tied to any alcoholic beverage of his choice, we will have whatever he's having. But Ron Hornaday Jr., you owe me a beer, my friend. So get ready to ante up and pay up. I think he can afford it, but we'll see. All right, thank you for that stroll down memory lane, Dad. And thank you, Mom, for uh, A, the Kachiga, and B, uh helping me get Ron Hornaday Jr.'s autograph that day at the Kevin Harvick Fan Club gathering in Kernersville. Let's start off this episode, as we always do, with a good old-fashioned <laughs> And throw straight over to our interview with Taylor Moyer. As I said, crew chief of the eight Junior Motorsports Xfinity Series Chevrolet Camaro. This man has been around the block a time or two, but... He's still young. He's still got a lot left to do, a lot left to accomplish. His day job's the crew chief of the eight car, but he is an interesting fella. Not only does he live on and own a farm, not only did he start at Hendrick Motorsports while he was in college, not only is he from Vermont, but he also has some fun stories from his time on the road in NASCAR and just being involved in the sport for the better part of a decade or so. Been involved in racing his whole life, 
move down to the Charlotte area to try to make this dream life a reality. And as he says, he is one of the people making the American dream a reality. So excited for you guys to hear this chat with crew chief for Junior Motorsports. It's Taylor Moyer. Pleasure to welcome on to the show this week, another Junior Motorsports crew chief, Taylor Moyer, shot caller for the eight of Josh Berry over at JRM. You got your water bottle all filled up. You got your clothes out the way, die cast in the background, truck ready to roll tomorrow. You are rip rocking and rolling, my friend. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. So we were just talking before we started recording. It's a busy time of year for you. Your driver is obviously very busy as well. West Coast Swing. It is not an enviable position for any of you guys, especially crew chiefs trying to manage everything to be in. What What is a typical day for you like right now? Um, You know, this is actually where I'm kind of a type A organized, like to make a plan, like to over communicate type of person. So this stuff doesn't doesn't freak me out. And um, I kind of sometimes think of it as a competitive advantage. I mean, a big part of that is I'm at a great organization with enough resources to manage all all this stuff. Because there's been there's been audibles along the way. Right. Um, Who would have known Josh was going to drive the cup race? And obviously he has some debriefs because of that and, you know, less time with him. But. I have a great group of people around me at JRM and then a really good group of guys on the eight team. And uh, we just try to stay organized. Um, I just stepped out of a little 15 minute meeting we had, we have on Mondays, which we just go over, um, you know, last week. So for last week, we were turning around the California car to, to become the Vegas primary car. Um, so my normal days uh, are just try to get organized. So I had driver meeting this morning, managers meeting, try to see where the cars are at, see where the physical haulers are at, when we're going to have stuff, um, when we're getting engines back from the dyno and just try to manage the process, right. And try to help out as much as I can. Sometimes the best way I can help out is just get the guys, the things they need and stay the heck out of the way, let them do their jobs. Yep. Um, but it's actually, it's all went for as much stuff as we ran into in California. Um, it's all went, it's all went pretty smooth. So I would like to have one a race, obviously, but um, the logistical side of things and the plans we've been making, everything's been working out. Well, that's good to hear. I know uh, it probably has to feel pretty good. I, I want to play the Reunited song because you and Josh are back together, hopefully better than ever. Obviously, you've worked with a ton of different drivers. you work worked with nine in one year, which we'll get to here in a little bit. But not working with Josh last year, now coming back together, must feel like a nice little reunion. And you guys are off to a pretty good start. Yeah, it does. Um, I think there's always some nervousness every time you get a new driver. So Josh isn't a new driver to me, but he's a new old driver. And him and I have both developed as humans, you know, within a year's time. Um, the nice thing about it is it doesn't take long to kind of pick back up where we started off. And uh, I thought a lot of our earliest success when we were together in 2021 was the was like just the way both of our personalities were. Um we just kind of get along like two brothers. I mean, we're not afraid to yell at each other. We're not afraid to pick each other up. Like it's just very natural. Um, and, and, uh, that's just human dynamics, right? Some people just are naturally easy to get along with and, and are cohesive personalities. And that's the way Josh and I seemingly are. So it hasn't been tough. And yeah, it, it is great to race with Josh. I mean, Josh is a class act. He is an extremely hard worker. Um, it's all that other crap outside the race car that I believe has a lot to do with 
how successful people are nowadays. I mean, once, once Jimmy Johnson becomes a triathlete and starts winning seven championships, I mean, everybody's elevated. You got to work out, you got to study. Cause if you're not somebody else's, so how serious they take that, um, is, you know, that's kind of reflected directly on the racetrack. So, you know, Josh works his tail off and that's all anybody can ever ask of a driver is to work as hard outside the car as they do inside the car and, and stay on the same page. So, no, I'm happy to be back with Josh. Um, I hope he would say the same, but I, I think everything's been clicking off off pretty good this year. So, I can't speak for him. I know you can't either, but I'm sure he would considering the uh, the good results and the good speed you guys have had so far. So, I mean, I mentioned a couple years ago, back in 2021, your crew chief in the car, you got nine drivers in and out of that seat. Any driver you can imagine. I'm not going to list them all off, but you had Moffitt, you had Jeb Burton, you had Dale Jr. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Then last year and this year, you had one. So you go from nine to one in a couple years. That must be a nice transition. Instead of having to put a different seat in the car every single week, you just have a same seat in the car, the same driver that you're talking to and the same relationship that you get to, you know, make a little bit better. It must feel nice to not have that rotating panel coming in and out. Yeah. I mean, I can't say that I would want to do it any other way. It let me develop as a young crew chief and, and person a lot, right? You're going to get, I got every single personality type. I got every single um, driving style. I, you know, I got different drivers from different walks of life. I got different drivers with different experience levels. I had Zane Smith and myself in that first season. It was actually 2019. We were pretty successful together and Zane didn't know anything and I didn't know anything. Right. So I go from that to having Dale in the car, you know, in two weeks and it allowed, it allowed my growth as a, as an individual and as a crew chief to just be that much more accelerated. Um, the, the thing about it though, was basically they had to come drive my car, right? We would, we would change the seat insert and the pedal spacer and that was about it. But I had to keep everything else as consistent as possible. We made them use the same spotter. Um, they were driving setups, you know, our team setups, I couldn't, you couldn't keep track. Like, you know, so once I, you know, I went nine to three to three to one to one. So what that ended up being is now, now it's much more Josh Berry setups, right? We, we can tune the setup and tune the car around him. Whereas, so it was, it was kind of a nice progression for my career. I mean, I'm sure. Yeah. Everybody wants to come in their first year and win every single race. Um, and some people do, but I'm I'm just not that guy. I have to learn by making mistakes and I have to be given uh, the grace to make those mistakes and learn from them. And I, and um, it, it actually worked out well for me. So. So when the boss man comes into the seat, you've obviously crew chief for Dale a couple times. Is the pucker yeah. factor any more than it is when you have anybody else in the seat or is it same old, same old? Uh, so the first time for sure, you know, you're just terrified. And I had worked with Dale back at Hendrick Motorsports. Um, and, you know, he came right up to me and said, he said, this is your car, not mine. You're the crew chief. You know, I might own it, but I want you to do your deal. And I kind of felt like going to Darlington and doing it and showing him how I like to do things and then coming out with a top five, you know, and he was pretty nervous. Darlington's not an easy track. I mean, he was so excited. He got out of the race car at, with a fifth and decided that he was going to go get in the Darlington parade. You know, <laughs> um, once that happened, all my stress kind of with him kind of went away. Like I, I know he is Dale jr. He's racing Jesus, but he's just a man. And 
he just wants to be treated as another driver and um and treated fairly and treated the same and, and us give him the same effort so after that it's been it's been fun we went to homestead we went to homestead with him during um covid race and you know there's no fans there's nobody there there's five pick there's five guys and him and he gets to walk on pit road for probably the first time in his career and not be mobbed by people yeah get in the car, no practice, anything. And I know he was nervous and we started 12th. We never got past that day. We were, we should have run second to Noah. Um, and there was a late race caution. We ran fifth again, but I mean, there is a pucker factor in that you want to show your boss the best for sure, but it, it is not as stressful as people make it out to be. And I feel like that's partly on the driver, right? I mean, obviously some of it's internal and you're thinking, all right, got, got to show out for the big boss, man. But at the same time, if the driver himself, who also happens to be the owner, doesn't really put that pressure on you, then you don't really feel it. So I think that's kind of a sign of a of a good boss letting his people, who he's hired to put in this position, do their jobs. I, I feel like it goes both ways, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I've heard Dale reference uh, Mr. Hendrick a couple times, you know, about his career and his progression as an owner and as a person. And, um, you know, I was raised at Hendrick Motorsports. That's where I worked since I was in college. And I'd hear him say it a lot, and I'd hear like guys that are kind of role models and friends of mine, Stevie Latar, Darian Grubb, some of those very people forward crew chiefs. They'd openly admit, like, if I'm doing my job well, I should be the dumbest guy in the room because like I should hire all I should I should hire people that are better at their jobs than I am, right? Like that's a good leader. Um, so I've tried to model, I've tried to model the way I manage people around that, but I know Dale is very much the same way like we'll he'll still text me out of the blue when he's off with a late model and be like what what should i do with this and i'm like dale i'm not a late model racer and he'll be like yeah but you should know like your vehicle dynamics you, you know like help him out but no he doesn't micromanage by any means he's not in there i mean other than let's make sure he wants to have his seat in the car so he's comfortable which is perfectly acceptable but other than that he, he hires you he wants you to do your thing so that's very cool um so you mentioned, you know, your background at Hendrick Motorsports, Stevie Latar, Darian Grubb. I know Chad Knauss had some influence as well. We'll get to that. But before we get to, to your steps to becoming a crew chief at JRM, which led you to Hendrick, I'm curious about your roots in Vermont, because when you think of racing, you don't necessarily think of Vermont all the time. Obviously, when when I think Vermont and NASCAR racing, I think of Ken Squire. I think of Dave Moody. They obviously talk about times that they grew up going to the racetrack. And yes, even though you're in the Northeast, people still love racing just as much as they do in the Southeast. I feel like you're a perfect example of that. You, you didn't go down the media route. You went down the crew chief and the engineering path, right? Yeah, and it's it's pretty crazy. I don't. I guess it's just not publicized, but um, Phil, the crew chief of the one car, Ross Chastain's crew chief, he's from Vermont. Dave Rogers is from Vermont. Hmm. Uh, um, there's at least 15 guys, like high caliber people from Vermont. Um, maybe it's cause there's not much to do there other than dirt race and farm. And I don't know, tractor pull. I mean, tractor pulling and dirt racing in the Northeast. I, I grew up on the dirt tracks. I didn't, my dad raced at, um, airborne and Plattsburgh and stuff, but I, I grew up on the dirt tracks and man, there's, I mean, modified racing. It's intense. It, it's huge. It's very big and it's very competitive. Um, you know, I still help sponsor my best friend in a car up there and they have four classes of modifieds so they can get everything in, in one night. I mean, everybody races. Um, 
and it is it's a it's a different there is hmm, i might get grilled for saying this but there is more quality racing up there short track racing up there in my mind than there is in the immediate charlotte area for sure because part of it's probably demographics of people and who can afford to race um but there's there's just a really good sh local short track scene up there and it, it's I'm through, it makes me so proud i mean my local devil's bowl speedway the fourth of july video they put out it's got a drone flying over the top of the dirt cars in the feature and monster trucks in the background and fireworks like it's the there's big dirt track racing up there Bad people ass. just don't know about that's it bad. yeah i don't know what that reason is either because i mean you hear about the southeast that's the that's the hub that's kind of the mecca but the midwest has an incredible short track late model scene the west coast obviously Derek thorne comes to mind winning everything under the sun and we know about the northeast with modifieds but that's kind of tailored to massachusetts connecticut upstate new york that type of area and vermont doesn't get a whole lot of love but to your point there is so many racing divisions. There's so much talent up there. I don't know why the reason that doesn't get as much pub either. Maybe it's people like us that don't really look into it too much, but let's start changing that. So I want to chat about UNCC. I know that you went down there and you, you worked on getting your engineering degree. I do have a question though, as it relates to Virginia Tech. Now I, I did not go there, but I was listening to you with my buddies, Andrew Curlin and Jason Schultz from a couple of years ago. And I think that you said that you were the first person in your family, either side, to not become a Hokie? Correct, yep. And I got, wow. got in there. I got accepted there, yep. Yeah, I got into some, uh, I don't know, I got into Clemson, Georgia Tech, Virginia Tech. Um, and all my cousins, aunts, uncles, mom and dad, everybody goes to Tech. Uh, wow. I was also probably the first person to be outside of agriculture with my degree. I might have an aunt that has like a finance degree, but my mom was ag business. My dad is dairy science. You know, I'm come from a family of farmers, both sides as far back as it goes. And I, I just knew that I was going to have to work through college. Like I was, I was going to have to work. And I also knew that it'd be much easier to just work for race teams through college and get my resume built that way versus go to Virginia tech and do whatever, manage a beef cattle herd through college and then try to go get into racing. So sure. Makes sense. that was my, that was my ultimate decision. Um, I really like Clemson too, but same thing. Like I didn't know how other than a formula SAE team and I'm still this way. I believe, a, I better, I believe my best shot of getting hired out of college was come out with like a full work resume and working on dirt cars growing up. I could do sheet metal fabrication pretty well. And that was, I moved down and got a fabrication job pretty quick. And that's what, that and pit crew is really what, you know, helped pay a lot of my bills through college, which ultimately led to Hendrick Motorsports and it, it all worked out. So yeah, I went to UNCC. I, I did spend some time. I had two cousins at in Virginia Tech when I was at UNCC. So I'd go up there and visit them often. But um yeah, that's why I chose Charlotte. Well, my girlfriend went to Virginia Tech and she's a hokey, so she's in the other room bad mouthing you, but don't worry, I'm on your side. Um all right. so you go there, uh, you wind up at Hendrick Motorsports, and I think you started on the developmental pit crew, right, before you did anything. How did you first, as, as a college graduate, somebody who's very green, very young, and relatively inexperienced when it comes to NASCAR racing, especially on the big-time level like HMS, how did you even get your foot in the door with an organization like that? So I actually got in there when I was a between sophomore and junior year of college wow. like I said I was working full-time so the first year I worked as a fabricator on a smaller team in Mooresville 
um, building a lot of cars. That's where I got into the pit crew side of things and changing tires. Um, and then I transitioned. <laughs> yeah. So then I actually met somebody at my grandparents 50th wedding anniversary who knew somebody at Hendrick and I, he took me to lunch. Um, the fabrication deal was kind of ending. We had built a bunch of cars for a fellow and they didn't need us as, as much. And there was an open pit crew tryout at Hendrick on the developmental deal. And I just went down there and tried out and they, basically told me you can keep coming back and working out and pitting with us. So at that time I was just contract labor. I wasn't on Hendrick payroll per se. Um, but I have always heard you just stick around and prove to people that you work hard. Uh, eventually. So I was waiting tables and then pitting stuff and going to college. And eventually I just asked if there was like any job I could have. So I was the parts kid. Like I was the parts runner at Hendrick's like a campus. It's not one building. It's a yeah, bunch of buildings. Yeah. So I worked in a this department called Central Parts and I had a little flatbed golf cart and you know the 48 team would need four boxes of paper towels and three things of SD20 and they'd call me and we'd put it on the golf cart and bring it up there and this is why I was getting my engineering degree and I kind of figured like you know that's not the most prestigious job but my foot was in the door and it was a good way for me to meet like everybody at Hendrick and they're always going to see me working. Like if they see me, it's because I'm literally running up there with their stuff. So I can like prove how organized I am and prove how efficient and ultimately it paid off an engineering internship opened up in the chassis shop, which just suited me well because with the fabrication experience um, and getting my degree. So then I was a chassis shop, intern chassis body shop intern for two years and then um when i graduated they hired me full-time in that capacity so designing parts and helping build chassis and helping with bodies and roamer arms and from that i did that for years three four five years maybe and i just got to where i spent more and more of my day behind a desk and didn't like touch hear breathe smell race cars and i was almost to the point where i was like man if i'm just park behind my desk this much. Like it doesn't feel like racing. It feels like I should just be designing widgets on a position when it was still open testing a position opened up for uh, a test engineer. Like, you know, they, they call it, call it that data acquisition guy in the 4888 shop. So for Stevie Latart and Chad Canals. And I did that for a year before they were basically like, yeah, you're going to become a race engineer. Like you're good at good enough of this stuff. We're going to use you. Um, so I did. And then actually the first three years I worked for Keith Rodden and we were on the, I was on the five car that team turned into the, what, what, what became when Casey retired, it became William Byron's 24 team. We just changed car numbers and I was with uh, Darian for one year. And then yeah, 2019, I got the call to come up here. Wow. So it sounds like you were on almost the, the Stevie Latart plan. Cause I think, wasn't he the one that wound up sweeping the floors at Hendrick yeah, and yep, just got his yep. foot in the door. So kind of comes full circle. You wind up working for him, but I mean, that, that's a testament to you and, and your workflow style of just, as you said, getting in the door and doing whatever it takes to just make yourself be seen and heard and make your, your desires be known that you want to do more. And you did. So you, you were on the Stevie Latart plan, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, other than the carbon shop and the engine shop, there isn't a shop down there that I haven't worked in. So I, I felt like when it got, you know, I felt like it paid dividends when I got to this point that I don't really know how to lay up carbon and I probably can't paint a car very well. But other than that, I feel pretty confident helping any of my guys, you know, turn wrenches or engineer the car, whatever it may be. So I think that just built me as a, a racer, you know, in a good way. Cause I had actually never even 
I think I've been to one asphalt race before I even moved down here. Other than that, I just dirt tracks. Wow. Yeah. I'd never, I don't, I didn't have any desire. I thought it was boring. Um, sorry. I think you drive a race car with your right foot. Uh, so, <laughs> so that's interesting when you come down here and you have little to no asphalt experience, did you feel like a fish out of water? Cause on paper, it seems like you were. I definitely was. I mean, I felt like a fish out of water too. Cause I'm in school with a bunch of guys from around the area whose dads work for this team or dad's dad was a spotter for this guy you know and that's where i felt like i couldn't be picky about how i got in the door because i i just didn't have that advantage just no fault of theirs i just better get in the door however i i could um there was a series called hooters pro cup when i first moved down mm -hmm. which was a big a big deal i mean you had when i moved down logano was in it trevor bain uh richard boswell drove the junior motorsports i mean every team had a pro cup team and um, it was a great series for like developing brand new guys like me. Then there was a bunch of like old cup guys that still wanted to race like 13 races a year was good and make a decent living. And it, it, it allowed me to learn a lot. And there was a team that I, that found me that was like needed somebody athletic enough to pit the car and could really use a fabricator. And that's kind of how I, that was the first asphalt races I went to work at. Wow. But I, I grew up playing team sports and doing a lot of, you know, team organizations like 4-H and whatnot. So I, the reason I wanted to stay in a, in racing in general was just, I, I do really enjoy working as a group of people. Like I like teamwork, I guess is a funny way to put it, but you know, I get to be an adult and still work with a group of team, you know, a group of people, which is, which is cool. Not, you know, in a sport, not just like a group of yeah. a work group. So. So we mentioned uh, Steve Letarte, Chad Knauss. Those are two of the bigger names that you'd work with. Obviously, Keith Rodden, Darian Grubb. All those guys that have kind of led race teams like you're doing now with the eight group. What lessons did you learn from them or did you take and absorb from them that you've kind of put into practice with your own self and your eight team as a crew chief, as a leader of a race team? Yeah, I think I couldn't do this conversation justice without going one step back because there's some people that influenced me dramatically at HMS that you'll never hear about, right? There's a guy named Mark Witten who runs the chassis shop. And then there's a guy named Richie Parker who was the, let's say like the head engineer of the chassis shop. And those two got me as like this 20 year old kid who talked too much and just wanted to prove himself and wasn't scared of hard work, but was kind of reckless and doesn't, you know, just gung-ho and those guys had in a in a rough loving way you know because it's it's chassis shop right it's the old guys that have been doing this for 30 years i was kind of accepted into down there and those guys you know it's tough love they're big brothers their dads their uncles and and they really made sure i when i left that chassis shop that i was like a good person a good man and i had a good work ethic that would get me far um, I think without that experience, if I go up the hill and I work for Chad, Stevie and those guys, I don't think I ever make it because, um, you know, there's just some life lessons that if you haven't learned them, you know, you're, you're not gonna learn them until it's too late. So I, I'm glad that it went like that. But then, yeah, I, I definitely, I mean, it's hard not to be around crew chiefs of that caliber and pick up tendencies and habits. Um, a big thing for me is this is a people sport until robots drive these or put them together. I am in the people management business and I don't take that lightly by any means. I, heck, I just took some continuing education last year for a week um, to just keep trying to get better at that for myself. But that was some of the biggest things I learned how I like to be managed, um, how I don't like to be managed. I learned what seemingly worked for experienced drivers like Casey Kane, Jimmy Johnson, and what 
works for a new rookie like William Byron. Um, so it's hard to say exactly. I, I think a lot of what I learned from them was um, just to try to kind of be a chameleon because I might be set in my ways, but it does me no good. NASCAR is funny in that every year you can't just handpick your team, right? Everybody's tied up in contracts and whatever. Mm -hmm. um, I'm blessed to have a great team now. And sometimes that's just luck of who's available when. But there is times when you have to be, you have to adjust your personality and your management type for your group of guys that you have. So those are definitely lessons I learned from them. Um, for sure. I mean, every one of those guys is, you know, Keith's back to crew chief and Austin Dillon. Um, Keith is one of the most book smart people I know, like engineering minded, the guys in encyclopedia. I wish I could be that smart, right? Like I learned so much vehicle dynamics about him. He can put it in layman's terms. You got Darian and Stevie who are just like, you know, to this day, I'll go, you know, have a drink with them. They're just the nicest people. They're so good at getting the last ounce of effort out of people. They're so good at getting people to just want to give them everything they got. Going to the track with them was an absolute blast. Like you look forward to going to the racetrack to work because you knew it was going to be fun. Um, and then obviously Chad Knauss, very successful guy. Everything that on his team, you know, the 48 team when he, uh, when I was around it, it's always going to be the best of the best. You know, he, he will teach you all the way down to how you present yourself. So the sponsors want, you know, to give you more money. Well, that helps because, you know, just a ton of professionalism and uh, really how to run, how to run a team like a business, you know, and which we're in a professional sport. Like at the end of the day, there's a lot of money attached to this and, and you are responsible for that. So yeah, I tried to, I, I can't say in the moment of all those things that I always agreed with everything, but Luckily, I'm open-minded enough to have learned something. It might have taken me three years to realize it and, or become a crew chief to look back and be like, oh, yeah, that's what they meant then. But I, I, I do. I have I had the blessing of having some great mentors along the way. Yeah. I, I love how you started that answer, basically, going back and giving credit to those that are not really on the forefront of things and are not really talked about because they're not the ones that are on TV every week and out there making all the decisions. But Everybody can relate to that type of thing. What whatever industry they're in, they there have been people along the way that have helped them get there. So I appreciate you sharing that. I got a lot more ground I want to cover with you. So I'm gonna to try to go through some of these rapid fire because I may or may not have done some intel and I may or may not have some questions on some interesting stories for you. But first, All right, come on. Um, before before you joined Junior Motorsports, like did you have did you have aspirations to to become a crew chief to to do those things that Darian and Stevie were doing in terms of being a quote unquote leader of men. And if so, how did those things materialize for you? And when did you get the call? My goal is to be a crew chief by the age of 30. And I, I hit that mark by two weeks. Attaboy. I, I started at junior motorsports on January 2nd and I turned 31 on January 14th. So I was still 30 wow. when I signed my contract, but, um, that materialized to be 100% honest because there was a bunch of changes at Hendrick and they probably didn't really have a place for me. Um, an engineering, an engineer, head engineer's relationship with his crew chief is very important. And the crew chiefs, everybody had their guy and I was the odd man out. Right. So, um, but there was a spot up here at the time. There's only like 16 races. The fourth car was going to run up here and I had made, it known that I wanted to try to be a crew chief. I thought I would be actually better at that than I was an engineer um, because of me enjoying working with people and not really loving staring at my computer all day. 
And uh, yeah, some and Mr. Hendrick and I think Mr. Hendrick, Jeff Andrews and Darian Grubb made it happen. I think they made a phone call up here. They needed somebody um, at that time. I don't, I think I, so like I said, it was 16 races. I think they might've had five drivers signed. It ended up being nine drivers in a full season. So it, I, I guess that's how it worked out. But Mr. Hendrick called me and said, I was, I was going to go do it. And so I said, yes, sir. What's it like getting that call from Mr. H man. Actually, the first call I got was one from everybody else saying, what in the world, Mr. Hendrick can't get a hold of you. And I, for once had actually shut my phone off to go in another interview. Oh man. Yeah. So I thought I had missed it. Um, but some friends made sure that the second call that I was prepared and ready to receive that. So <laughs> at least you I, didn't think it was a robo call or anything. Yeah. Yeah. Luckily I had his number, so I didn't just hit, you know, ignore, but that's something. Um, all right. So let's get into some fun stories here in the limited time I have left with you. I know that there may have been a, um, and this is actually timely considering what happened to Chase and how it affected your driver, but a, uh, yeah, I see your face, a little snowboarding incident at Auto Club back in the day. I hope oh, that yeah. your tailbone okay, and not... your back has recovered. Yeah, that's not how where I thought you were going, but yeah. I, um, oh, wait, well, up... hold on. Where'd you think I was going? Nope, nope. You're fine. Oh, I, I grew oh, up. Man. I grew up, you know, in Vermont. I learned to ski when I learned to walk. Skied till I was 14, switched over to snowboarding. Just a Northeastern kid that could do a bunch of it. So when we would stay out between Phoenix and Auto Club at Hendrick, a bunch of us would go to Big Bear for a week. And I got a little too big for my britches. Um, overshot a jump by a long ways uh, and flat landed on my back. Separated the my separated my sternum, pulled my ribs out of my sternum, which is pretty painful. And yeah, I had to eat a lot of crow because I was supposed to be the good snowboarder. And I ended up about half the season seeing the chiropractor once a week um, just to get my ribs reset. And that's one of the most painful injuries. But yeah, that's kind of a typical, uh, I don't lack confidence and I definitely didn't lack it that day. And I it got me. So I can tell. Um, all right. This is a very weird sentence to utter, but um, can you tell me about the story that you thought Sam Mayer was peeing in your ear at Michigan while you were fixing his transmission? I can. Yep. So he blew a transmission out and, uh, I was determined that we were going to use the rest of that race as practice. So we came in and put the car on four jack stands and I made him sit in the car with the window net up. Like we can get this done. So we went to changing it. And about the time I remember I was laying on my side and my car chief and good friend, Danny jr was helping me put heat shields back on and his eyes got as big as saucers and I could feel something dripping in my ear. And when I looked up, it went right in my mouth. And I think we both thought that he had peed in a seat. So I, I was bound and determined and me and Sam just talked about this the other day. So we still think it's funny that I was going to like teach him a lesson. So I had the window net down and I was going to drag him out of the car and drag him somewhere where nobody could see what I was going to do to him. And when I realized he had just got hot and dumped water all over himself, but by the time it traveled all the way down, it was pretty warm, but I thought, yep, I thought he had disrespected me and the whole team by peeing on us, but it wasn't the case. So. Clearly, it didn't taste like water. Yeah, uh, at that moment, there's a lot of thoughts that go through your head. I I can understand that. All right, well, uh, I'm not going to pry too much and ask you what you th where you thought I was going uh, with that other story. We'll save that for offline in a minute or two. Um, but now I know that you live on a farm in North Carolina. I think do you still have that that other company, the Outdoor Gear and Storage Systems Company, with your brother? or Is that no more? No, that's no more. We shut it down in 2019. Uh, so I owned it from 15 till 19. That was fun. It was a great learning experience. It was Latart that Latart's always got his, always had other business endeavors. Always pushing you. Yep. 
And um, no, it was a great experience, but my little brother got a heck of a job in a big promotion and I got promoted to crew chief and we tried to sell the business and just really couldn't find a buyer. And um, we were back in the black. So we just shut it down and took it as a learning experience. Um, but yeah, I do. My wife and I own a farm. I bought it in 2018. Um, we raise black angle, black Angus cross cattle. Um, it's, it's what I grew up doing. Um, this isn't the family farm. This is one I bought, but it's, I don't know. I know that's a little weird for most people. It's just normal to me. Like all yeah. my family is pretty much farmers and that's what, that's what normal life is. So it'd be weird to me if I, I don't know, lived in a suburb. That's not, you know, that's, that's weird to me. So wide open spaces is very normal. And so that's, that's how we live. Vermont and dairy farms, they go together like peanut butter and jelly. So I'm not sure. It's where Ben and Jerry's is from and Cabot cheese. So exactly. Exactly. Yep. Great. Um, last thing for me, realistic expectations this season with Josh. He's obviously a proven race winner. You're a proven race winner. You've done it together before at Martinsville, which I wanted to get to. Uh, gonna have to have you back on. I got so many more questions, but how, how do you guys measure success and what are realistic expectations for you guys this year? Well, so my personal expectations for this year for myself was to get Josh to cup and, uh, job I mean, done. That, yeah. I, it's not the way <laughs> we want it, but you know, like, legitimately I'm not going to write a number on the wall. It's like, I got to have six wins or it's a failure. If I win five, it's great. If I win five, but I should have won 10. I don't know if I win five, but I really only should have won three, then maybe I'm happy. Uh, but my bigger goal, my bigger goal is just to develop everybody on the team. Right. I mean, develop Josh to the point that every cup team is beating down his door, trying to get him to come drive their cup car. That's my goal. Um, yeah, past that, I want to win, want to sit on some poles, want to be a contender for the championship. And um, I think we can do all that. But I think what Josh represents as a driver and as a person is very much the same upbringing that I had in rural Vermont or a lot of race fans have. And I think the fact that we can get guys like that to the top level uh, really resonates personally for me. So that's why my goal is that, right? I want, I fully believe the American dream is still alive. And I fully, fully believe in hard work will still, you know, bring you to the top. So I hope, I think if we can get that done and that doesn't always come with wins, right? There's people that have made it to cup level because they just prove that they are thoroughly good racers, good drivers. They're going to be good representatives for the brands that want to sponsor them and then go on to be successful. So however that looks, um, that is my, my number one goal. I know that you're very content with the here and the now and you're focused on 2023, but if the opportunity ever presented itself to move up to cup, maybe even with Josh, would, would that be something you'd entertain? Man, I don't know. Everything's situational. Um, so much of this sport is timing. You know, you got a time when you got a time when an organization is peaking with when a driver's peaking with when a, when a team is peaking, when a manufacturer is peaking, um, there's so many ebbs and flows, I think, timing some of that stuff. I mean, I'm also big on work-life balance and and a lot of that. So I think I'd have to, sure, I would entertain offers. I'd be stupid not to, but, um, you know, I'd have to do some soul searching for sure. It'd have to be the right deal. It'd have to be the right thing. You don't want to, I don't want to just jump into some deal that's like a no-win situation. And, then, sure. you know, I'd rather win. I just want to win, right? We, we you want to run good and win and um, whatever situation like that's what they've given me the opportunity to do here. So I'm not going to run away from it unless I have another opportunity that I can't turn down or is better. 
I asked your crew chief counterpart, Marty Lindley, the same exact question last week, and he gave me basically the same exact answer. So whatever they're feeding you at JRM, it's working. Uh, there you go. Taylor, I appreciate your time, man. It's great to catch up. Great to talk a little bit more in depth with you. Now let's, let's hang up so I can hear the real story that you want to share. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. And we are back. Woo. Yeah, if I can only tell you what we talked about off the air, right? And it wasn't too, wasn't too bad. You can find it somewhere on the internet, I'm sure. Uh, but thank you so much to Taylor for hopping on, and I will take you up on that offer to to join me another time because I feel like we're only just scratching the surface with his story and all the things that you can get into with him. And he he also seems very technical, could get into the nitty-gritty of things when it comes to crew chiefing a race car at the Xfinity Series level. So thank you to Taylor. Thank you so much, my friend, and thank you also to KC of JRM for helping coordinate that conversation. Much appreciated, you two gentlemen, as always. Let's dive headfirst into Las Vegas Motor Speedway, Sin City, this past weekend. William Byron is the one who started on the front row, led over 150 laps, won the first stage, won the second stage, and it looked like he was not going to win the race. That was going to go to Kyle Larson, had about a 20-25 car length lead over Willie B in the closing stages, and wouldn't you know it, some bacon in the wall. Eric Amarola hits the wall, brings out a caution, forces overtime. Martin Truex Jr. is told to stay out by James Small. Kind of basically a sitting duck on older tires. Everybody else pits. They take two. At least the front runners did. William Byron, his pit crew, gets him out right before Kyle Larson's at the line at the end of pit road. And that, that was pretty much all she wrote. Larson didn't have a bad stop. Byron's just had a great stop. And on the restart... Truex kind of fell back a little bit. Byron obviously capitalized on that, cleared him coming to the white flag, and that was all she wrote. William Byron wins his fifth career race, second on an intermediate track. His first was at Homestead back in 2021, one at Martinsville last year, and Atlanta as well, not to mention Daytona, where he won for the first time too. So two super speedways, two intermediates now, one short track, and obviously the third straight win to open up the year. For Chevrolet, Stenhouse at Daytona, Kyle Busch at Fontana, and now you got Willie B doing so in Las Vegas. First time since 2010 that Chevrolet has won the opening three races to the year. We'll see if they can make it four next week out in Phoenix. And William Byron, he, he deserved this win. He was the fastest car for the totality of the afternoon. My question is to him, and I'm sure he probably has similar ones, can this be sustained? Because... We saw to open up the year last year, he wins, what, two of the first eight races at Atlanta, did it at Martinsville, and then in those summer months and even into the early fall, totally, totally fell off. I think he went, you know, over two or three months without a top 10 finish, did not get in the top five pretty much at all, and it was kind of a, a head scratcher. You didn't know what was wrong. You didn't know what was happening because his teammates were running well, his teammates were winning races. He was kind of the odd man out and the outlier for a good portion of the season. Obviously made the playoffs and had some success there. But I'm curious to see, and I hope for William and, and Rudy Fugel and everybody on the 24 team's sake, that they can continue that good run of speed for the rest of the spring into the early summer months and continue that for the rest of the year. Because it's one thing to be good at the start of the year. It's another thing to be good at the end of the year. What you can do in those doldrum of the summer months and when you're going to Texas and Kansas and 
and Pocono and Watkins Glen and all these tracks that you click off in the summer that you need to run well at because you need playoff points. You need stage points. You want to put yourself in a good position to succeed when the time comes in the playoffs and you need to cash in on those points. William Byron, unfortunately, he did not do that last year, considering that he just went that big stretch without a lot of success. So I'm looking to see if they can turn their luck around a little bit instead of what they had happen last year, have a little bit better fortune this year. And obviously the West Coast swing continues. Race three of three for this particular West Coast swing is at Phoenix Raceway, a big race for a lot of reasons. Most importantly, this is where we will crown the champion for all three national series later this year in early November. But more importantly, almost, I would say it's the debut of the new short track rules aerodynamic package. We heard a couple weeks ago from NASCAR's Eric Jacuzzi, rules coming down the pipe and hitting the desk. Spoiler reduction from four to two inches, some differences going on with the rear diffuser and, and how those will be implemented for this weekend. Basically, their goal is to get rid of some of the downforce and get rid of some of the grip that this next-gen car has on short tracks and road courses, every track besides Dover and Bristol, every track that has wet weather packages involved with them as well besides those two concrete tracks that I just mentioned. Now, they are estimating about a 30% reduction in downforce, and somebody on Twitter who I consider their takes and their opinions to be very well-educated and informed, Bozy Tatarovich, who is a uh, mechanic on the 84 for Legacy Motor Club on a part-time basis this year, he said he thinks it's going to be more around 15 to 20%, but regardless, that is better than 0%. So I'm anxious and I'm hopeful and I'm excited to see how NASCAR's new cars this year will be implemented on Phoenix. And even though that's not a quote-unquote true short track, it's really important to have good racing at that track, given that we do crown the champion there later in November. So I'm anxious to see how it goes. This is obviously not the last time we will be there this year, but I'm wondering to see if uh, the track will do anything special for Kevin Harvick, given the amount of success that he's had there in the past. Because if when you go back in November – if he is not championship four eligible, he's obviously not going to be in the spotlight a whole heck of a lot. So curious to see if they do anything this weekend. But regardless, I know that they will in November for sure. And we can catch all the Phoenix racing action this weekend on your home for NASCAR. Sirius XM NASCAR Radio, Channel 90. And that will wrap things up, my friends, on episode 176 of Victory Lane. Thank you again to Taylor Moyer for given me so much of his time and a busy week for him. I, I'm very, very appreciative of that. And I'm also very, very appreciative of you for tuning in and listening to us this week and every single week. I know I tell you every week, but I really mean it. It does mean a lot to me, and it would really mean a lot if you also left a rating and a review on iTunes. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcast to get this very show, whether it's Apple, Google, SoundCloud, the green app that I'm not supposed to say, Wherever you get your podcast, we should be available there for your consumption. And if we're not, please drop me a line and I will uh, try to rectify that issue for you. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. We'll be back next week with another guest from the world of NASCAR. I don't know if it's going to be another Junior Motorsports crew chief, but I got two to go. So never say never. We will talk to you guys next week. Recap the racing action from Phoenix. Look ahead to Atlanta and chat about everything in between. Peace and love, everybody. Talk to you next time, party people.